Okay, everyone, we're going to go ahead and begin. So come on in, have a seat, and we're going to pray and, uh, and get started. Father, we ask that you'd be with us this morning and that your word would be alive to us and that we would be uh, full of interest in it and faith, not just as an academic uh, curiosity, but as the words of life, Lord. Please help us to be encouraged and strengthened by this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. This is the, our seventh week in studying God's covenants through Scripture, and we've seen that God, God's covenants is the theme that runs all through the Bible and ties the Bible together, right? We've seen this over and over, but covenant is not just a theme that ties the Bible together, because the Bible is not just an interesting book. The Bible is God's book, and it's the story of everything, right? And so the Bible, uh, the covenant doesn't just tie the Bible together as an interesting literary device kind of thing. Covenant is a reality that ties everything together. Everything in the universe is tied together by this reality, this truth of covenant. This is God's world. Every aspect of his world is tied to covenants. That's how God works. God is a person, not a force. And as a person, he enters into relationship with everything. He is, God is not unrelated to anything in creation because he's the, he's the absolute person. And so we've seen that God binds creation to himself by covenant. It's what I call the universal covenant way back at the beginning of our time. We've also seen that God bound Adam to himself by the covenant of works or the covenant with Adam, whatever you want to call this, the Adamic covenant, a covenant that Adam broke, remember, by violating the one negative stipulation of the covenant from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Adam broke that, broke the covenant. But then last, last week we saw that the rest of history from that point on is governed by another covenant, the covenant of grace. And all of God's dealings with mankind from the point of Adam's rebellion onwards is according to this covenant of grace. The covenant of grace applies to all human history from, from that point forward. And God's first promise of the covenant of grace comes at the end of God's curse on Satan after Satan had deceived Eve in the garden. We saw this last week, Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity, right? That's, uh, he'll make them enemies. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, you, Satan, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is a promise that he himself, God himself, will establish a perpetual animosity between Satan and the woman, between Satan's seed and the woman's seed. There will be a, both a spiritual and a physical struggle that works its way all through history, culminating in the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ himself, coming to destroy the devil and his works. When God promises um, salvation and redemption, there's always judgment attached to it. Judgment for the enemies of God. That's what we, saw, we see in Genesis 3. Promises of 
judgment and redemption. They go hand in hand. One group gets judged and destroyed, the other is saved. This is all through scripture, you can't separate them. We're rescued from our enemies. And so that is, the, that is the through line of all history from that point forward. A redeemer will come, a champion, a savior who will save his people from their sins. Everything in, in history runs on those rails. But here's the thing. <clears throat> this covenant of grace was not plan B. Okay? So when Adam broke the covenant of works, God was not left scrambling around trying to figure out how to fix this. You know, now what do I do? God doesn't make it up as he goes. God is not an ad-lib God. He is not a bumbling bureaucrat reacting to every problem in a frenzy of ineptitude, you know? Oh no, now what am I gonna do? He's the Lord. And everything that happens in all of creation is under his lordship and rule. Everything that happens, happens according to his eternal purpose and plan, including what? Adam's fall. Including Adam's fall. And so when Adam broke God's covenant, that doesn't mean God is guilty of this. Adam did it. But when Adam broke God's covenant, there was not a scramble or a frenzy to, or a make it work kind of moment, right? Even at that very moment of judgment, God declares his eternal purpose. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He will crush you. You will only bruise him. And that promise of a redeemer that we call the covenant of grace was the outworking, right? It was the outworking in time, not of a spur of the moment fix that God had to figure out at, at the moment. Oh, what am I gonna do now? No, it was the outworking in time and history of an eternal purpose that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had agreed upon from before the foundation of the world. And we call this eternal agreement among the persons of the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity, the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. So what is it? Let me give you a definition. The covenant of redemption is the covenant established in eternity between the Father, who gives the Son to to be the redeemer of the elect and requires of him the conditions for their redemption, and the Son, who voluntarily agrees to fulfill those conditions, and the Holy Spirit, who voluntarily applies the work of the Son to the elect. Now let me make that a little easier to see, all right? So, the covenant of redemption is the covenant established in eternity. So this means, this is before time, all right? The fancy word for that is pre-temporal, right? Pre-temporal, before time between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see that? So it's the Trinity. So this is a, the other, the big word for that is inter-Trinitarian, right? So the, the three persons of the Trinity before time. So the covenant of redemption is the covenant established in eternity between the Father, what does he do? Who gives the Son to be the redeemer of the elect and requires of him the conditions for their redemption. And we'll see this in scripture in just a minute. And the son, who voluntarily agrees to fulfill those conditions given to him by the father, and the Holy Spirit, 
who voluntarily applies the work of the Son to the elect. All of that was worked out, not in the spur of the moment, not as a, oh no, we gotta fix this, what are we gonna do now? Oh, I know, let's do this, no. This was all agreed upon in eternity before the foundation of the world. Now, where do we see this in the Bible? <clears throat> this, first of all, this plan of redemption was included in the eternal purpose of the triune God, Ephesians 1. I'm gonna read several parts of there, not the whole passage for time's sake, so you can see the verses I'm reading. Blessed be the God and Father, so there's the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he, the Father, right, chose us in him, Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. This is the Father doing this. But through Jesus, according to the kind intention of his will, the Father's will, this is all originating from the Father, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he, the Father, freely bestowed on us in the beloved, which is Jesus. Okay? And then he says, Oops, wrong direction, next slide. In him, that's in the beloved, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. Skip a few verses. Also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternal purpose, working everything according to his will, the Father, chooses and gives these people to the Son. The Son comes, takes on a body that can die, that can spill its blood, and he redeems those people with his blood, and the Holy Spirit seals them, okay? That's, that's just the outworking of this covenant of redemption, all right, that was before the foundation of the world. You see this in Ephesians 3.11. This was in accordance with the what? eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you have an eternal purpose. So how long has that purpose been around? Forever, backwards. But then he carried it out in time, in Jesus Christ, right? Here's another, 2 Timothy 1. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, you see, and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. From all eternity. 
Not spur of the moment, not plan B. This was the plan from all eternity. As long as God has been God, this has been the plan. But then now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. So you have eternity past, the plan, then you have the plan being put into place and working in time. All right? But it's an eternal purpose. And so the plan of redemption was included in the eternal purpose of the triune God. You see that? Here's the second thing. The Bible speaks of this eternal purpose of the triune God in covenantal terms. What do I mean? This is from uh, theologian Louis Burkhoff. Whoever, wherever we have the essential elements of a covenant, namely contracting parties. So who are the contracting parties and their covenant redemption? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We have the contracting parties. We have a promise or promises, which we'll see in a second, and a condition, and we'll see that in a second. There we have a covenant. That's what a covenant's made up of. That's what it is. And that's what we're gonna see exists before the foundation of the world between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So where do we see these things? Well, it's clear that God the Father appointed the Lord Jesus to accomplish a work. We've seen the persons, the parties. Well, what is the work? You see this all over the place, by the way, in the Gospel of John. This is where I'm gonna be quoting extensively from the Gospel of John. Jesus says this over and over again, this kind of thing. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, all right? He's speaking of his father. He gave me work and what, what keeps me going is doing that work, right? John 5, 30, I can do nothing of my, on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. So you have the contracting parties, you have a duty, you have work to be done, conditions to fulfill, right? And Jesus says, this is, what, this is all I do. All I do is what the God the Father tells me to do. John 5, 36, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, the Baptist, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the works which the Father has given to me to accomplish. The, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. John 6, all that the Father gives me, okay, there's a group of people that the Father gives to Jesus, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. What's the will of him who sent him? To save people, certain people. Certain people who will end up actually what? Of being saved. This is the will of the one who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is the agreement that we read about kind of in, a, in Ephesians 1. The Father gives a, a people to the Son and the Son agrees to take on a body 
become a man and die for them. Die for their sins, right? John 10, for this reason the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. This is the commandment of this covenant. Here's what you must do. John 12, for I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. John 14, I will not speak much more to you, with you, for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So you see the command over and over again. And you see Jesus, the faithful, uh, obedient son, right? The one who, who doesn't break the covenant, but in fact fulfills it over and over again. This is what he's talking about. God gave me the work and I am fulfilling it. He gave me the commandment, I'm obeying it. John 14, or John 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. John 17, this is Jesus praying right before he goes to the cross. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him. You see that? There's a group, particular group, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I, the glory which I had with you before the world was. I've done what you told me to do. Now, so there's parties, there's an agreement, and there's Jesus keeping the agreement. Now what happens when Jesus keeps the agreement? When he does the work that his father gave him to do? There are rewards, there are promises, there are rewards for him. You see this in, all, in many places, here's one. Isaiah 53, but the Lord <clears throat> was pleased to crush him so this is the father and this is the son, putting him to grief. If, there's a condition, there's a condition, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, then what? Then he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, because he did these things, because Jesus did what he was commanded to do by the Father in this agreement, therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This is all 
here's what God the Father is doing, here's what God the Son is doing. And if God, if God the Son does these things, here's what happens. He will see all the fruit of it. He will be given everything that comes from this. He will divide the booty with the strong. He will be the king. He will be exalted above everything. Now, where do we see that in the New Testament? Where do we see that? Jesus comes and he obeys and then he's rewarded. Philippians 2, right? Remember the sermon a few weeks ago? Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Obedient to whom? His father. His father said, you will go, you will take on a body, and you will fulfill my law perfectly. You'll do everything that Adam didn't do. And you will die as a sacrifice for the sins of the people I've given you, right? And what did Jesus do? He obeyed. It was an act of obedience for Jesus to go to the cross. He was under the authority of his father. He was under the covenant. And he kept it. Because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then what happened? For this reason, for what reason? He obeyed, right? He obeyed. He became obedient to, the, to death, even death on the cross. And for this reason also, God kept, his, kept the terms of the covenant, we could say, and rewarded him. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is just saying everything that uh, Isaiah 53 said. More clearly, right? But there it is. God the Father rewards God the Son for faithfully and perfectly completing his work. One more. <clears throat> Luke 22. Jesus says, speaking to his people, speaking to his disciples, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you'll sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is speaking to the apostles. This word granted is really interesting. It's, it's, um, it's not the kind of word that I would use if I just give you something. Here, have a, have, a, have a lollipop, you know? No. This is the word that the word itself is connected to covenant. From the word where we get our, the word in the New Testament for covenant. So this is like a king giving a land grant. Go back to the history of the United States and the King of England gave land grants and charters to colonies and it came with stipulations, it came with duties on both sides, it came with responsibilities, privileges, promises. It was, there, it was covenantal, really. And that's this word, okay? My father has granted to me by covenant 
a kingdom. This is the reward for his faithfulness to the terms of the covenant. And then he turns around and says, I grant, same word, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you'll sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So these are all the marks of a covenant, all right? In this case, it is a mutual bond, not, it, it's a mutual bond between equals, unlike God's covenant with us, covenants with us, but this is a mutual bond between the three persons of the Trinity. God the Son is not coerced by God the Father to enter into this agreement. But even still, there is a flow of authority from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit. It's always that direction. The Father has given me a job, a work. The Father has commanded me, Jesus says. And so yes, the three persons of the Trinity are co-equal in their nature and in their godhood and their eternity. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equally God in every way. The Son is not less God than the Father, right? But the Father sends the Son. It could not have been any other way. The Son cannot send the Father because he's the Son. He's the Son forever. And so the Father sends the Son and gives him commands and requirements and stipulations and the Father promises rewards if the Son carries out this commission of the Father. And he does, he does it. And so Jesus is the head of what we looked at last week, the covenant of grace. And we see this in a couple of places in scripture. The Bible clearly speaks of Adam and Jesus both as heads of two different covenants. So just like Adam was the head of a covenant, he represented his people, who are Adam's people? Everybody that comes from him, right? And he stood as a public person, as, a, as the head of a covenant, that God would deal with all of his people based on what Adam did, okay? That's what we see, that's what we saw last week. Exactly the same thing is true of Jesus. Jesus is the head of his people, and God deals with all of his people through the actions of him. Adam, Christ. Now, where do we see this? The very short version is in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam, in Adam, all die, so also in Christ, all will be made alive. Now, that doesn't mean every person, every man, woman, and child in history will be made alive because these are, these, these are covenant terms. Everyone who is in Adam will die. Everyone who is in Christ will be made alive. He rep, each one represents a people. Who are the people that Christ represents? We've already seen it over and over again. Who, what are they called? The elect, the ones that the Father has given to him. You see that all over the place. We've already seen it. Those are the people he represents. Here's the long version, longer. Uh, Romans 5. Now, okay, put your logic hat on and follow the words and actually think. Don't just blah, blah, blah. Here, look at it. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, right? That was the, that was the term of the covenant. 
in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So death began at that point through that act of disobedience. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. How did all sin? In Adam, he represented us. So God deals with us based on the bad work of Adam. And he says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. We didn't eat, Adam's children didn't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They didn't sin like that, but they became sinners because of Adam. He goes on, but the free gift, on the other hand, now he's talking about Jesus and Jesus' people and Jesus' work, but the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. That's what we looked at last week. Judgment, condemnation, because that one sin of that one man passed to everyone, all the human race, all mankind. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, this is Adam, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. This is, these are two heads of two different covenants. They each represent each group. All of mankind in Adam, all of elect mankind in Christ, okay? And the sin of Adam, the, the guilt of that, and the corruption of it is passed down to his people, but the righteousness of Christ, the second Adam, is passed on to his people. That's how it works. That's how covenants work. Clearly, we are to think of, of, of Christ as the head of a covenant. This is a covenant between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that is then in eternity worked out in time. And here we are. Now, real quick, what are the theological implications of that? Anyone have any questions about that? Or thoughts? Do you see this? Yes, yes, no, maybe so. What are some theological implications? Okay, I'm gonna give you some theological and some practical implications of this. First of all, this covenant of redemption, this okay, pre-temporal, right, before time and eternity past, pre-temporal, inter-Trinitarian between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This covenant of redemption is the foundation of the covenant of grace. So we kept seeing that, little hints of that, 
through the scriptures that we've read. There was a plan in place, an agreement before the creation of the world, before Adam sent. And then it works itself out in time. What the thing that works itself out in time is the covenant of grace. I will send a redeemer who will crush the head of the serpent. But that goes, that's rooted in this eternal covenant, okay? And so when Adam broke his covenant with God, the covenant of works, this agreement between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to redeem particular sinners from the penalty of death was already in place. And so the first promise of the covenant of grace was simply the working out in time of this eternal purpose, this covenant of redemption, okay? Secondly, in the covenant of redemption, Jesus agreed to accomplish a work of obedience, a work. So the covenant of grace for us, who's working? Not me. But Jesus is working. He does, he does the work that Adam failed to do. And on that basis is able then to represent us and give us life, give us righteousness, impute it to us, charge it to our account. And so my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And so in the covenant of redemption, the Son of God agreed to enter into a covenant of works, just like Adam. All right? Remember it said Adam, in, in uh, Romans 5, Adam was a type of him who was to come. Jesus. They're, 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 they're on the same, in the same category. And so Jesus, the Son of God, agreed to enter into a covenant of works, just like Adam, so that we, his people, could partake of the covenant, not of works, but of grace. You see that? He did the work. He did exactly what Adam was supposed to do. But he did it for us. So that now to the one who does not work, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his, your faith is credited to you as righteousness. That's, that's how the covenants work. Let me give you another big um, quote here from Burkhoff. For, for him, for Jesus, the law of the original covenant applied. The original covenant was the co God's covenant with Adam, the covenant of works, okay? Namely, that eternal life could only be obtained by meeting the demands of the law. As the last Adam, Christ, obtains eternal life for sinners in reward for faithful obedience. And not at all as an unmerited gift of grace. Jesus does not receive the, the promises of the covenant by grace. He, he earns them by perfect obedience. All right? And what he has done as the representative and surety, that's a covenant word, of all his people, what he has done as the representative and surety of all his people, they are no more in duty bound to do. The work has been done. The reward is merited and believers are made partakers of the fruits of Christ's accomplished work 
through grace. This is how the gospel works. It's by covenant. God's promises come to you as a believer. God's promises of righteousness, of he's gonna look at you now as Christ, as obedient as Christ is, that's how he sees you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That comes, that's built on not flimsy like uh, sentimental, aw shucks, okay, I'll let you in. It's built on like solid granite covenant justice. All right, lastly, some personal implications for this. And I said it before, your salvation is not plan B. All right, and I want you to think about this very clearly and very carefully and let it sink in and actually think about it and actually grasp it. As long as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been which is how long? Forever. As long as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been, they have covenanted together for your salvation. As long as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been, they have covenanted together for your salvation. Second Timothy 1.9, remember? God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. This is not a spur of the moment whim that he's gonna whim out of. All right, God loved you from before the foundation of the world. God loved you from before, that's what covenants are, their relationship. He loved you from before the foundation of the world. Look at this, John 17, again that prayer of Jesus before he went to the cross. Now look very carefully at what this actually says. The glory, Jesus speaking to the Father, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, Father and Son. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and that you, Father, loved them. You following? Even as you've loved me. How has the Father loved you? How? What does he say? What's the comparison? in exactly the same way that he has loved the Son of God. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Okay. Father, the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world in eternity, right? You, Father, have loved them even as you've loved me. 
So how has God loved you? From before the foundation of the world. And how? In exactly the way that he loves Jesus, the Son of God. Do you hear me? No, you don't. (laughs) I know you don't, because I don't hear it either. You have to let that sink in. You have to let it sink in. What gets in the way of God's love for his son? What gets in the way of God's love for his son? Nothing. What is God's love for his son conditioned on? Well, you could say perfect obedience, and the answer to that answer would be right. And does Jesus give perfect obedience? Yeah. And so he loves him. Just, and then it says, and he loves you just like he loves me. This should blow our minds. Think about your life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, think about what your life was like before you bowed your knee to him. Think of all your sins. Think of all your foolish pride. Did God know about all of that before you came to Christ? Yes, of course he did. That's what he sent Jesus to save you from. Think about all your sins since you've been a Christian, which are greater than the sins you had before you were a Christian. Did you realize that? The sins that you have committed since you've been a Christian are infinitely worse because you've sinned as someone with the Holy Spirit. Have any of those surprised God? Did he know exactly what he was getting when he bought you to be his own? When he gave you to his son for his son to save? He knew exactly what he was getting. He's not stupid. And so I'm reminding us of this not to make us lazy or licentious with our sins, but I'm telling you this to encourage you to stop doubting the sincerity of God's promises to you. If you waver, if you fail to believe God's promises of salvation and forgiveness and acceptance, then you will always be fighting your sins with both hands tied behind your back and both of your legs cut out from under you. That doesn't work. But God has loved you with an everlasting love. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have purposed together in an unbreakable eternal bond to secure the salvation of all of those who believe. Listen, this is the last thing. Listen to this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Not maybe, certainly not. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is as solid as God the Father being God the Father, God the Son being God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit being the Holy Spirit. That's how solid this is. We gotta be done. Would you chew on this? 
and think about it and believe it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would make us believe this and comfort us and strengthen us and encourage us not to be lazy or licentious, but to be hardworking, obedient, because all of our sins have been forgiven. Please help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.